We did that last week. <laughs> you didn't do it last week. <laughs> well, hi. Welcome to episode six, I think. Of <laughs> 10-0. <laughs> Where true crime meets the paranormal. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. So, how we doing? <laughs> This is going to be fun, isn't it? I can't stop laughing. God damn it. <laughs> oh, crap. Okay. So, we're going to dive right into true crime today. <laughs> Shit. And on June 18th, 1984, talk radio host Alan Berg was gunned down and killed instantly at his Denver, Colorado home in the driveway. Yeah, he was self-described as the man you love to hate. Is it karma at that point? I I don't know. I mean, Um, he was self-described as that due to the 50-year-old using an abrasive approach, having liberal viewpoints, and an outspoken personality. Um, He was target for a hefty stream of death threats. Bruce Pierce, a leader of a neo-Nazi organization at the time called The Order, was arrested one year, about one year later, um, while driving a van that contained guns, explosives, and a crossbow. That escalated quickly. <laughs> um, David Lane and Richard Scatari were accomplices. That's a fun name. And caught shortly after, um, a jury concluded that. Pierce was responsible for the shooting while Lane drove the getaway car and Skatari was acquitted. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made me want to go back and listen. See if I could find some of the talk radio Mm -hmm. blurbs on the internet, but I didn't get that far. I was interested, but not interested enough to... (laughs) Well, shit. Go back. <coughs> well. So, do we want to do true crime completely at the beginning today, or do we want to do paranormal? It's up to you. Mine's about an American gangster, so depends on how much we want to dive into that right away. Mine's not about an American gangster, so... <laughs> I don't know. I'll go first. Fuck it, why not? Okay. So, I know we normally do paranormal. I decided to do a... Um, I don't know if you call um, it supernatural or like a legend kind of thing. I don't know. So, I chose Black Eyed Kids. Okay. You heard of Black Eyed Kids? I'm You've never heard of Black Eyed Kids? No. Seriously. Seriously. It's fucking creepy as hell. So, obviously, it's kids that have black eyes. Obviously. So, the first recorded sighting was in 1996 in Abilene or Abilene, Texas. Um, the kids are usually between the ages of 6 and 16 and almost always travel in pairs. Sometimes they'll be in outdated clothing and they talk is not. 
with the times, okay, I suppose. So, squirrel moment. Unstable. Your story for this episode starts in 1996. My story for next episode starts in 1996. Well, that's creepy. Yeah. Coincidence? I lost I my not. spot. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Well, shit. So the kids are usually requesting to be let in someone's home or given a ride somewhere. Um, They're supposedly, allegedly, more likely to approach people that already know about them. Allegedly. So their eyes are huge. Their eyes are supposed to be massive. Like, not just, like, normal-sized eyes that are black. They're supposed to be, like, large and in charge. One-time performance only, thank you. Um, Victims that have been around them usually get a sense of impending doom and panic when confronted with the kids. Okay. So the first... Yeah. Yeah. Sounds all right. So (laughs) the first sighting, recorded sighting rather, in Texas, I'm not going to try to say that town name before I get yelled at, um, was by Brian Bethel. He was a journalist. In his report, he describes a late evening out in his vehicle. He had stopped in a parking lot near a movie theater to write a check. He said he was so absorbed in this that he didn't notice two young boys approach his vehicle. He didn't notice until the older boy tapped on the driver's side window. He rolled down his window and noted immediately a soul-wracking fear, though he couldn't understand why. So there's our impending doom and panic. Here's where it gets creepy. The older boy said that he and his brother wanted to catch a movie, but had forgotten their money at home and asked if Bethel could give them a ride. They assured him that it wouldn't take long. They were just two kids and that they didn't have a gun. Bethel found the assurances unnerving and noted that the last showing of the film they wanted to see had already started and would be nearly over by the time he could drive them anywhere and get back. In his telling of the incident, he stated that when he broke eye contact with them, his fear became all-encompassing and it wasn't until he broke eye contact that their eyes became completely blacked out. Okay. So, rewind a little bit. Why would they tell him they didn't have a gun? I don't know. Like, that's unnerving. It's creepy. The older boy began to get frustrated when Bethel made excuses for not giving them a ride and said that they couldn't get into the car unless Bethel said it. That's another thing. They have to have your permission to so, enter your vehicle. So kind of like vampires. Like, yes. they have to have permission to enter. Yes. After that, Bethel tore out of the parking lot, and to this day, he still stands by his story. Right. To creepy-looking little kids, just... Right. A, you're going to the movie theater and you forget your money. No. no. That's the first thing I would check for, is to make sure right. I have my card or cash, whatever. I mean, even back then... I mean, this was, was 1996. Six. I was three. And... The old fart. Like, <laughs> 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 it's only three years. Respect Respect your fucking elders. We had a in the town where I lived, and my brother would take me all the time, you know, 
alongside my boyfriend now, we would all three go, and they'd sit two rows behind me, and they'd make sure we had money for candy, popcorn, snacks, whatever, right. drinks. Granted, you know, most of the time they wasted their fucking Skittles by throwing it at us back in the head, but... That's some sacrilege right there. <laughs> be off of the point. Um, that just... That just sounds... Creepy. Weird. So, I found a lot of stories... I should say, online. Um, So I'm just going to read a bunch of stories. And, um... Dear Lord, I didn't realize that you had printed that much out. Well, they're also in huge print. So, I probably won't read all of them, because some of them are really freaking long. But there's one in particular that I really want to read. Uh, which one is it? So the incident took place about 13 years ago. I just moved to a new city with my wife. We were small town newlyweds from the Midwest. I moved across country to the, one of the biggest cities in the Southwest so I could attend graduate school. Being naive and new to city living, I habitually answered the door without a second thought. And never again after this. The first thing that should have tipped me off was... The first thing that should have tipped me off to the peculiarity of the situation was the fact that someone was knocking at 6 a.m. in the morning. The second thing should, that should have dawned on me is this kid had reached over a rather tall patio gate to unlatch and open it. The knock at the door was startling. My wife and I were getting ready for work, a pretty normal routine. The moment I opened the door, I was overtaken with an inexplicable sense of fear. To this day, I can picture him. Teenager, average height, average build, knee-length, black leather coat, short black hair, and sunglasses. The sunglasses at 6 a.m. struck me as odd, and even more odd, he was eating an apple. He was very polite and asked if he could come in and warm up. I said no, closed the door, and slid the security chain into place. A moment later, another knock. I opened the now chained door. I could speak. He asked again if he could come in and warm up. No, I replied and attempted to close the door. Before the door could shut, he put his hand out, stopping the door on its hinges. He looked directly into my eyes, still wearing his sunglasses, and said, this is my favorite part of all of these stories that I read, he said, can I at least get some ketchup from my apple? What? Fuck that, I reply, albeit a little confused. Get the hell out of here. My wife is calling the police. He takes a moment to let this information sink in, lowers his glasses, revealing his eyes as black as obsidian, and says, no, you won't be calling anybody. At that moment, I force the door closed and lock it and call out to my wife. She is scared shitless, hiding in the bedroom. All jacked up on adrenaline, I rip the curtains back to look out of the window next to the door. He's gone. Absolutely no trace of him. I go out on the patio and check the gate, and it's still latched from the inside. That was fucked up, I think to myself, and as I turn to enter the house, I notice a half-eaten apple laying on the ground. Nobody? Nope, nope. (laughs) Nope, Nope, rope. (laughs) We're not talking about snakes. Come on now. I mean, (laughs) we could be. So my next story. On March 17, 2008, I had my one and only encounter with a black-eyed kid. Before my experience, I had never heard any black-eyed kids. I was 12. I was sitting outside of a hairdresser's in an old Chevy pickup waiting for my mom to get her hair cut. About 15 minutes had passed, and I saw some kid walking back and forth along the sidewalk in front of my parked car. At first, I thought I recognized him as one of my friends from school, so I banged on the front windshield until he looked my way. It was not anyone I knew. At this point, I was not scared at all. Not yet. The boy walked over to my side of the car and just stares. I think to let me get a good look at his eyes, to freak me out. Let me tell you, 
If you've never seen a black-eyed kid, you have no idea what to imagine. Pupils black as the night sky. The boy whispers, you must let me in. And then I locked the car doors and ducked down into the space between the seats. Five minutes later, he was gone. When my mother got into the car, she told me a boy with black eyes had come into the hairdresser's and had insisted for my mother to give him the keys to the car. She refused. Thank God she did. Yeah. Fuck that. Again. Nobody. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nah. Big no. Nah. Hard no. Okay, this will be the last one I do because the other two are kind of long. It felt like a dream. I woke up to my dog, Lucy, barking. She was upright on the bed where my husband and I were sleeping with our 22-month-old daughter, staring at our door like an unknown stranger was out there rummaging around. I thought she was just freaking out over a house noise. We'd only had her for three months, and she was still a puppy. It could have been anything. Our roommate, a creak from the house settling, the awnings moving outside in the breeze. I wasn't too concerned initially. I decided the best bet would be to open the door and show her nothing was there. It sounds a bit silly, but it's what we do with our daughter when she gets scared, and I figured it should work with a puppy, too. I opened the door, and she raced to the front door. She stood there, snarling at the door. It was an angry, violent growl, one I never heard her make before. I looked groggily at her and opened the baby gate, blocking the doorway, planning to open the door and show her everything was okay. The second my hand reached for the deadbolt, Lucy went wild. She started barking and jumped toward me, and when I touched the metal, she suddenly changed her temper. She whimpered, almost like she was afraid, and backing down. As her mannerism changed, so did mine. I wasn't calm anymore. My heart was racing and sinking at the time. I had been flooded with a mixture of fear and dread. I looked outside through the people. I can't explain why I looked, but I did. Outside were two kids. One was just a smidgen shorter than me and didn't look much younger. I'm 21 and she looked to be 16 or 17. She was slender and pale. Her hair was a light shade of honey blonde. And she wore it long about, mi about mid-back with long, thin, blunt bangs in the front that covered most of her eyes. She wore jeans, a light wash that's popular right now, and a thin-looking, olive-covered pullover-style hoodie. She held the hand of a small girl who looked to be about three or four in the same style of jeans and a button-down ivory cardigan. The smaller one looked at the floor shyly, but had the same shade of hair tied back in a ponytail. She held a stuffed toy under her free arm, and it was identical to one my daughter has, as was their style of dress. Had it not been for the feeling of overwhelming dread and fear, I probably would have asked these children in and given them some tea or hot chocolate to get them out of the bitter cold. Something about them seemed off. At this point, I hadn't made any noise. I just shushed the dog or grumbled. And nothing. I, had turned on, I hadn't turned on any lights. These kids had no indicators I was at the door. The older one spoke. She had a voice that was mature, confident, strong, and accentless. She held her head tilted downward, and I couldn't see her eyes. She said, we have to use your phone. I stood frozen in fear. How did she know I was there? She raised her head to face me directly, and that's when I saw her eyes. There was a reason I couldn't see them through her bangs before. They were black, or midnight blue, or a dark, dark purple. They were otherworldly. She said, our mother is worried. As someone who has always been interested in creepy stories, I knew, that she, I knew what she was the second she looked at me through the door. I've never been one to believe in these things. As a staunch atheist and skeptic when it comes to the paranormal, I had written off many a ghost story from friends and family members eager to tell their tale. I didn't believe it. Still, I couldn't rationalize my way out of this. I was standing with nothing but a thin wooden door between me and a black-eyed kid. There was no questioning what was right in front of me. I'm getting fucking chills right now reading this. I've read the story 10,000 times. I'm still getting chills. I did not answer her. 
Slowly and silently, I backed away from the door, Lucy still cowering at my ankles. She kept talking. Just let us in to use your phone. I took another step back, and with that step, the tone changed. At first, she seemed polite. When I took that second step back, she became commanding, almost hostile. We're not going to hurt you. If we wanted to do, if we wanted to do that, we would have broken in. I'll ask again. May we come in and use your phone? Lucy snarled out the door, and I inched backward. Though something inside me seemed to be slowly pulling me back toward the door. It wasn't a physical pulling so much as a subconscious need to go up and let them in. I got to my room, covered up the window, locked the door, and sat there in the dim light of the nightlight. I heard her call me back to the door once more, and then quiet. I didn't go back to sleep that night, and I haven't slept right since. I know from reading about them that black-eyed kids can't just come in without permission. I know they haven't hurt anyone, but I still fear I'll be the exception. When I told my husband, he said it was just a dream. He keeps telling me to forget it, but this lingering feeling of sadness, this dread when the house is silent at night, this fear of a knock on the door, this tells me otherwise. Good. No. There was one, I know the story, but I can't find it online anywhere. There was an older couple that let two of the kids in the house, and the electricity in the house went batshit. Like, all the lights started flickering, and they both ended up with cancer, and, like, they both died early. Oh, wow. Because they let these kids in the house. That sounds like a whole lot of nope. Nope rope. Nope, nope, nope. Nah. Not gonna happen. No. No black eyed kids for me. Okay? Okay, so after that little screwed up tidbit <laughs> of information that I have never heard before. Sorry, um, not sorry. We are going to get into some true crime. It's not as gory as I would like. Well, that's boring. <laughs> but it's about someone who is famous for a couple of different things. Um, he actually supposedly owned a home in, I believe, either like Cedar Lake or Lowell <clears throat> um, that was said to have tunnels attached to it. Oh. I can take you right to it. I just can't remember what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I used to drive past it all the time because I thought it was awesome. It's this big, huge mansion that just sits on a hill. And all you can see is the, like, wrought iron gate around the property. And you can see, like, the very top of the house, and that's it. Um, so we are going to talk about the house that's So it's kind of a twofer. Um, we'll get into... Al Capone's life and how um, he basically helped build the Chicago crime mob type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born Alphonse, Alphonse Gabriel Capone, and he was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17, 1899. He was an American gangster that co-founded the Chicago Outfit. He had a setting as a crime boss before going to prison in 1931. He was an excellent student as a kid, but had trouble with the rules at the Catholic school that he went to. Who um, wouldn't have trouble with that? Right? 
Um, his schooling ended at the age of 14 after he was expelled for hitting a teacher in the face. Well. <laughs> I mean, at least they expelled him. That escalated quickly. Right. Um, he worked odd jobs around Brooklyn. Um, and then he initially became involved with small-time gangs that included the Junior 40 Thieves and the Bowery Bulls. He then joined the Brooklyn Rivers and then moved on to the Five Points Gang based in Lower Manhattan. Um, during that time, he was employed and mentored by fellow racketeer Frankie Yale that was a bartender in a Coney Island dance hall called the Harvard Inn. Um, he inadvertently insulted a woman while working the door and was slashed with a knife three times on the left side of his face oh. by her brother. Well. Um, the wounds later led to the nickname Scarface. Hey, there you go. Which Capone hated. Understandable. He absolutely hated it. Um, from 1916 to eight, 1918, he played semi-professional baseball. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, little known fact. He was actually pretty good. Um, he was later influenced by Johnny Torrio, who became a mentor. And he married May Josephine Coughlin at age 19. Um, she was Irish Catholic, and earlier that month had, or, yeah. December 30th of 1918. Um, and earlier in that month, she had given birth to their son, Albert Francis Capone, who actually died in 2004. Oh, what yeah. was he born? 1918. All right. So he had a long... Yeah, long all right. Um, in 1919, he left New York City for Chicago at the invitation of Johnny Trio. Um who was imported by crime boss Big Jim Blossomo as an enforcer. Um, he started in Chicago as a bouncer in a brothel where he contracted syphilis. He never sought treatment. That's unfortunate. Yes. In 1923, he purchased a small house in the Park Manor neighborhood on the south side. Hijacker Joe Howard was killed on May 7th, 1923 after he tried to interfere with a bootlegger beer business that Capone and Torrio started. Um, his name became like very popular in newspapers um, amongst the sports pages where he was described as a boxing promoter, even though that wasn't true. Um, Torrio took over Colosimo's crime empire after the latter's murder on May 11th, 1920. Capone was suspected of being involved with that murder. Um, Torrio, an Italian organized crime group that was the biggest in the city, put Capone as his right-hand man. He worried about being drawn into gang wars and tried to negotiate agreements over territory between the rival tribe groups. However, um, it didn't work out the way that he wanted. Um, the smaller Northside gang led by Dino Banyan became pressured from the Jenna brothers, who were allied with Torrio. Torrio arranged for the murder of O'Banion at his flower shop on November 10th, 1924. 
this place hiding at the head of the gang. And Weiss had been a close friend of O'Banion, so the Northsiders made it a priority to get revenge on his killers. In January 1925, Juan was ambushed. Twelve days later, Taria was returning from trip when he was shot several times. He resigned and handed control to Capone, who became the new boss of the organization that took in illegal breweries and transportation, a transportation network that reached Canada um, with political and law enforcement protection. In turn, he was able to use more violence to increase revenue. Um, any establishment that refused to purchase liquor from him often got blown up. And well, that led to like hundreds of deaths back then. Well, yeah. You're um, blowing up alcohol. Right. Rivals saw Capone as responsible for the proliferation of the brothels in the city. Proliferation. Yeah. Big word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he based himself in Cicero, Illinois, after using bribery and widespread intimidation to take over town council elections. Mm hmm. Making it extremely difficult for the Northsiders to target him. So he was smart. Capone um, was responsible for Lombardo's. Oh, dear Lord, I lost my freaking place again. <laughs> <laughs> Get it together. We'll get back to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, his driver was found tortured and murdered. On September 20th, 1926, the Northside gang used a pulley outside the Capone headquarters at the Hawthorne Inn to draw him towards, like, the windows, mm-hmm. where gunmen in several cars then opened fire with machine guns shot- oh. and shotguns at the windows of the first floor restaurant. Capone was unhurt and called for a truce, but the negotiations fell through. Three weeks later, on October 11th, Weiss was killed outside the former O'Banion flower shop, Northside headquarters. So the owner of Hawthorne's restaurant was a friend of Capone's and he was kidnapped and killed in January 1927. Um, this bounces around a lot, um, just so you guys are aware. In November 1925, Antonio Lombardo was named the head of the Union Siciliana. I, I butcher a lot of things that I don't fluently speak. Um, so if I pronounce that wrong, I'm sorry. An infuriated Joy Joe. God damn it. <laughs> I can't talk. Joe Aiello, um, who had wanted the position himself, believed that Capone was responsible for Lombardo's rise to power. And he resented the attempts to manipulate affairs within the union. Um, Aiello served all personal bi- or severed. Dear Lord, God, get it together, Caitlin. Um, he severed all personal and business ties with Lombardo, thus entering a feud with him and Capone. So Aiello pointed pointed all of his rage towards the two and plotted to have them both killed and made several attempts to assassinate Capone. Mm-hmm. On one occasion, Aiello offered money to the chef of Bella Napoli Cafe Bella Napoli. to put prussic, prussic, prussic acid in their soup. I think it's prussic. Um, instead, 
the chef exposed the plot to Capone, who responded by sending men to destroy one of the stores that ALO owned. Oh. Yeah. More than 200 bullets were fired into the ALO Brothers Bakery Mm -hmm. on May 28th of 1927, wounding Joe's brother Antonio. Uh, a number of hitmen that he hired to kill Capone were all subsequently killed. Um, he even eventually offered a $50,000 reward to anyone who could manage to kill him. Shit. Um, at least 10 men tried, but they all ended up dead. How mu- I'm sorry, how much money was that? $50,000. And what year? Uh, 1927. 27. I'm just curious. Um, so here's here's why I say it's a twofer. I'm trying to yeah. fill the void while you look up how much. So fifty thousand dollars in 1927 converted to today. Take a step. A million. Not that much. Seven hundred fifty thousand. Close. Seven hundred sixty-seven thousand three hundred ninety-six dollars and fifty-five cents. Damn. Damn. Yes, please. Right? Continue. So, <laughs> Cabone was also widely assumed to have been responsible for ordering the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh. So, despite not being in the area at all and being at his Florida home at the time that this took place, they believed he was responsible. The massacre was an attempt to eliminate Bugs Morgan, mm-hmm. who was the head of the Northside Gang at the time. Um, to keep tabs on their target, Capone's men rented an apartment across from the warehouse and garage on Clark Street that mm-hmm. they used as Moran's headquarters. Um, on the morning of Thursday, February 14th, 1929, Capone's men signaled four gunmen that were disguised as police officers to initiate a raid. Mm-hmm. The fake police lined the seven victims along a wall and signaled for accomplices armed with machine guns and shotguns to shoot the victims. Moran was not among the victims. Um, Photos of the slain victims were released and ultimately ended up hurting Capone's image. So within days he was summoned to testify before on charges. But he claimed that he was too unwell to attend. In an effort to clean up his image, Capone donated to charities and ran a soup kitchen in Chicago during the Depression. All right. Um, he was primarily known for ordering other men to do his dirty work for him. In May of 1929, one of his bodyguards, Frank Rio, uncovered a plot by three of his men. Albert Anselmi, John Splays, and Joseph Gienta? Winter? Oh. Don't hate me. <laughs> um, that were that were ultimately led by ALO to be thrown home and take over the Chicago office. Capone later beat the men with a baseball bat and ordered his bodyguards to shoot them. Oh. That sound familiar at all? Yeah. Is that a movie? Yeah. <laughs> um, in nineteen thirty, after learning of ALO still plotting against him, Capone decided to finally kill him. Um, 
In the few weeks before Ayala's death, Capone's men tracked him to New York, where he had connections through Stefano Mad Magdino. I'm gonna need you to get your shit together. I, I don't know. You know, they sound better in my head. <laughs> <laughs> sound better in my head. I know how to say it in my head. Um, they plotted to kill him there. However, he returned to Chicago before the plan could be executed. Mm-hmm. On October 23rd, upon exiting Presta Giacomo's there you go. building <laughs> to enter a taxi, a gunman in the second floor window across the street started firing at Ayala with a submachine gun. Um, it was said that he had been shot at least 13 times before he toppled off the building steps and moved around the corner, attempting to get out of the line of fire. However, he ended up moving directly in range of a second shooter positioned on the third floor of another apartment building and was gunned down. Um, in the wake of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Walter A. Strong a publisher for the Chicago Daily News, decided to ask his friend, President Herbert Hoover. It's a close for, personal friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, for federal intervention to stem Chicago's lawlessness, um, he had arranged a meeting at the White House only two weeks after Hoover's inauguration. On March 19th, 1929, Strong, joined by Frank Loesch, of the Chicago Crime Commission and Laird Bell made their case in front of the president. And with that meeting, it launched a multi-agency attack on Trump. Um, the Treasury and Justice Departments developed plans for tax prosecutions against Chicago gangsters and a small elite squad of Prohibition Bureau agents, aka Elliotness um, were deployed against the bootleggers. Um, these lawmen were incorruptible, and Charles Schwartz dubbed them the untouchable. So, to support the efforts, Strong secretly used his newspaper's resources to gather and share intelligence on the Capone outfit. All right. It's um, one sneaky way to do it. Yes. On March 27th, 1929, Capone was arrested by FBI agents as he left the Chicago courtroom where he had been testifying to a jury um, that was investigating violations of prohibition laws. He was charged with contempt of court for lying about illness to avoid. So on March 27th, 1929, Capone was arrested. Um, he was charged with contempt of court for faking an illness. Mm-hmm. On May 16th, 1929, he was arrested in Philadelphia for carrying a concealed weapon. On May 17th, 1929, he was indicted by a grand jury and a trial was held before Philadelphia transfer... Nope. Municipal Court Judge Walsh. Um, Following the entry of a guilty plea by his attorney, Capone was sentenced to one year in prison. That's it? Yes. For, I believe, having the concealed weapon. Mm. Um, Capone was transferred 
to Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. Hey, Penitentiary. that's on my list. Penitentiary. Penitentiary. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird how I spell it. Penitentiary. Get it together. One week after his release in March of 1930, Capone was listed as the number one public enemy. So, public enemy number one. Yep. And that was publicized by Chicago's Crime Commission. Um, in April 1930, he was arrested on vacancy charges, and he was in Miami at the time, I believe. Um, he claimed that Miami Police Department police had refused him water and food and threatened to arrest his family if he didn't leave the state. Oh. Yes. Um, he was charged That's with perjury for making these statements, but was acquitted after a three-day trial in July. Um, in September, a Chicago judge issued a warrant for Capone's arrest on charges of vagrancy and then used the publicity from that to run against Thompson in the Republican primary. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. It, That's not shiesty or anything. Cops were even struck back then. Well, you know, I mean, not all cops are bad, but some of them happen to be a little shitty. Um, in February 1931, Capone was tried on the contempt of court charge. In court, Judge Wilkerson intervened to reinforce questioning of Capone's doctor. Um, Wilkerson sentenced Capone to six months, but he remained free while on appeal of the contempt conviction. In February 1930, um, Capone's organization was linked to the murder of Julius Rosenheim. Oh, shit. Um, IRS Special Investigator Frank J. Wilson was to investigate Capone with the focus on his spending. The key to tax charges was proving his income, and the most valuable evidence originated in his offer to pay taxes. Um, Capone offered his lawyer, or ordered his lawyer, to regularize his tax position. Um, his lawyer stated the income that Capone was willing to pay tax on for various years. Um, admitting income of $100,000 for 1928-29. Hence, without any investigation, the government received a letter from a lawyer acting for Capone conceding his large taxable income for certain years. On March 13, 1931, Capone was charged with income tax for 1924 in a secret grand jury. That's not shady. Right. Um, on June 5, 1931, Capone was indicted by a federal grand jury on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 through 1929. And I'm he was sorry. released. 22 counts? That's a lot. Um, He was released on a $50,000 bail. A week later, Elliot Ness and his team of untouchables inflicted major financial damage on Capone's operations and helped lead indictments on 5,000 violations of the Wolfstead Act. 5,000 violations? 5,000 violations. Holy shit. Uh, 
So on June 16, 1931, at the Chicago Federal Building, Capone pleaded guilty to income tax evasion and the 5,000 Volstead Act violations as a part of a two and a half year prison sentence plea bargain. However, Wilkins, Wilkerson. <laughs> <laughs> Wilkerson refused, <laughs> it's, it's the dang font that I use, um, Wilkerson refused to honor the plea bargain, and the council then rescinded their guilty pleas. On oh. the second day of the trial, Wilkerson overruled objections that a lawyer could not confess for his client. Um, he deemed that the 1930s letter to federal authorities could be admitted into evidence from a lawyer acting for but he later tried Capone on income tax evasion charges after he determined they took precedence over the Volstead Act charges. Capone's lawyers, who had relied on the plea bargain, ran a weak defense, claiming that all of his income was lost to gambling. Um, Wilkerson allowed Capone's spending to be, re- to be presented at very great length. Um, the government charged Capone with evasion of $215,000 in taxes on a total income of $1,038,654 during the five-year period. Um, he was convicted on five counts of income tax, tax evasion on October 17, 1931. You already know what I'm doing. I know. And was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison, fined $50,000 plus $7,692 for court costs and was held liable for 215000 plus interest to his back taxes. The contempt of court sentence was to be served concurrently. How much is it? I'm working on it. <laughs> That's trying to tell me $100, not a million dollars. Oh my gosh. So $100 in 1931 was $1,756.93 today. So, times that by 100,000? Yeah. So we'll just round up. Times one, zero, 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 zero. That's a big number. <laughs> yeah. 176 million, 300,000 dollars. Dang. If Capone was alive today, he'd be, he'd be a rich bastard. <laughs> kind of, I guess. Well, uh, well, because they, they mostly have Sure. Continue. Um, Capone was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary. And... <laughs> we mean... <laughs> Whoa! In May of 1932. He was 33 at the time. Um, when he arrived in Atlanta, he was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, he was also suffering from withdrawal symptoms for cocaine addiction. Oh. Um, he was competent in his prison job of stitching soles on shoes for eight hours a day, but his letters home barely making sense. He was seen as a weak personality, so his cellmate, Red Rudinsky, feared that Capone would have a breakdown. Rudinsky found himself becoming a protector of him, and the protection from Rudinsky and other prisoners led to accusations and suspicion that Capone was receiving special treatment. 
This aided in the moving of Capone to the recently opened Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. Hey, also on my list. On June 23, 1936, Capone was stabbed by fellow Alcatraz inmate James C. Lucas. Due to his good behavior, Capone was permitted to play banjo in the Alcatraz prison band, the Rock Islanders. <laughs> you know, rock Islanders. Because it makes <laughs> sense because they're on a rock. <laughs> on an island. <laughs> <laughs> um, which gave regular Sunday concerts for other inmates. Capone also transcribed the song Madonna Mia, creating his own arrangement as a tribute to his wife. While in Alcatraz, Capone's decline became increasingly evident as neurosyphilis eroded his mental faculties. Mm. So, syphilis can cause neurosyphilis, obviously, as well as syphilitic insanity. Left untreated, you go downhill really fast. No, thank you. Um, so, he spent the last year of his Alcatraz sentence in the hospital wing, confused and disoriented. Mm-hmm. Um, he completed his term in Alcatraz on January 6, 1939, and was transferred to Terminal Island in California to serve out the sentence um, for contempt of court. He was paroled on November 16, 1939, after his wife May appealed to the court about his health. Um, he was then released from prison November 16, 1939, and was sent to the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for the treatment of paresis, which is also another issue that comes with having STDs. Um, Hopkins refused to admit it just due to his reputation. Oh, that's rude. Um, but Union Memorial Hospital did accept him. Um, he donated two Japanese moving cherry trees to the hospital in 1939 as a sign of, like, thankfulness, mm-hmm. because they actually took him in. Um, a very sick Capone left Baltimore on March 20th, 1940, for Palm Island, Florida. In 1942, after mass production of penicillin was started in the United States, he was one of the first American patients treated with it. Hmm. Um, but the more was, you know. it was too late to reverse the damage to yeah. his brain, but it did slow down the progression. That's good. Um, in 1946, his physician and psychiatrist examined him and concluded that Capone had the mentality of a 12-year-old child. Oh, God. That's how bad it messed with his head. Jesus. Um, he spent the last years of his life at his mansion in Palm Island, Florida, spending time with his wife and his grandchildren. Um, on January 21st, 1947, Al Capone had a stroke. Um, he regained consciousness and started to improve, but contracted bronchial pneumonia. Mm. Yeah. He suffered a cardiac arrest on January 22nd, and on January 25th, he died after his heart failed as a result of apoplexy? I think I pronounced that right. Um, so yeah, that is the life and history of Al Capone. All that? He was one of my favorite gangsters, and I think that's... Didn't end happily as I thought was going to. I didn't know he ever contracted this one. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, uh, it, I'm sure it's just a rumor, but... Counts where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. Bombs Bridge in. Yeah. 
supposedly he used to hide out there. I don't know if that's accurate or not. It but, could be. Um, anywhere he ever hid out or anywhere that he ever resided, none of it was ever in his name. Yeah. He refused. Which is smart. Smart. Especially back then, because obviously he was charged with tax evasion. Yeah. All that property would have been gone. Yep. Especially with the way that everything goes now. Right. But, so, to recap, we have, you know, scary little black-eyed children. (laughs) I think I would shit my pants if I ever saw a black-eyed kid. Yeah, for real. No, thank you. Hard pass. Nope. Nope. And then we have Al Capone, who... Died of syphilis. Yeah. At least it wasn't syphilitic insanity. That's where you just mentally go fucking bonkers. As a result of your STD. Well. I guess. Yeah. Oh, and going back to our previous episode, we said garbage humans a total of nine times and shenanigans was four. Well. That's our limited vocabulary, I guess. (laughs) So. Just in case you're wondering. Thanks for listening. And as always. If you have any listener stories or anything you'd like us to cover, go ahead and shoot us an email um, with listener story in the subject line. Yes. As well as our Instagram and Facebook. Yes. Our Facebook is new, so go ahead and blow that up for me. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, well, we have an excellent episode lined up for you guys next week. So... Stay tuned, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you. Okay, bye. Stay safe, and don't become the next 10-0.